We're back. Hi, and thanks for hitting the snooze button. I'm Neil Headley. The first episode of season four after an 18-month hiatus. The podcast guru said it couldn't be done. Well, I was prepared to look at a literal lifelong battle with insomnia and just chalk it up to being part of the job as I spent more than 30 years in morning television and radio. I decided to dig a little deeper and I found out that I've got a lot more to learn. So in this series, we are going to fix your sleep by figuring out why mine is so horribly broken. And hopefully we can stumble on some answers together. You ready? So listen, we wanted to start this fourth season off with a bang and <laughs> sorry, I just realized that that may have been the poorest choice of words in podcast history. Um, this is the episode. Um, this is the one about sex. Well, specifically, uh, sex and whether or not it's actually good for sleep. Now, I know that as you are listening right now, you probably have a pretty strong opinion about it. Well, guess what, my new friend, or as the case may be, my uh, old friend that's returning after we haven't seen each other for a while. Uh, you're going to find out very quickly on this show that I really don't care about your opinion. I'm a science guy. Um, so we're going to see what the science says about sleep and sex. With an all-star panel of experts, that's my friend and perhaps one of the greatest believers in this show, Dr. Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona, maybe the most quoted and quotable guy in the sleep world. Dr. Jade Wu, sleep psychologist and the author of the brand new book, Hello Sleep. Dr. Wendy Troxell, senior behavioral and social scientist at the Rand Corporation and an adjunct faculty member in psychiatry and psychology at the University of Pittsburgh. And Cheryl Carroll who is, among myriad other things, a sex therapist at the Durham Women's Clinic in Durham, North Carolina. Before we get there, a quick personal note from me. I just wanted to say thank you to all the people who have been ridiculously supportive, encouraging, and helpful in staging this return for the snooze button. By way of explanation, let me just um, word it this way. Not long after our last episode, the one featuring the spectacular Diane Macedo from ABC Television's Good Morning America, um, I mean, I guess we'll just say that life fell apart. Um, I basically got almost completely out of public life for the first time since 1981. Uh, I shut down work on almost everything that I was doing and was ready to fade off into the murky obscurity that comes with being a former Canadian celebrity of sorts. Until I noticed one day that, as far as this podcast was concerned, um, people were still coming. Like, there was a day where it felt like that scene at the end of the movie Field of Dreams, you know, where the camera goes up, and then you can see the headlights of the cars coming from miles around... There were as many people downloading the show 12 months after its final episode as there were when there were still new shows every week. And to be honest, then I spent the next six months after that apologizing to dozens of people for letting life stuff get in the way of this work that the show does. So we had a ton of interviews banked. We're going to be getting to some of those in very short order next week, for example. Um, here's one. Here's a question. If you're a rock star, like a legit rock star, how do you fall asleep on the tour bus or maintain any kind of sleep schedule when you're in a different hotel every night for a year or more at a time? We're going to find that out next week. 
when we talk to one of the front men from one of the most legendary rock bands in history. And we're going to also get his theory on why that band isn't in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame yet. Now, the interview that you're about to hear was recorded right before the hiatus began. But the information in it is still current. So let's get to our all-star panel on sex and sleep with my friends Michael, Wendy, Jade, and Cheryl. Okay, so let me get into the genesis of how all this even started. Uh, If you go back into the archives for the snooze button, you will find an episode that we did with Congresswoman Stacey Plaskett, who is the representative for the Virgin Islands. And you probably remember Stacey Plaskett as the very tall, imposing figure on the prosecution team in the second impeachment of Donald Trump. So I asked her, as I do with so many of the guests to come on the show who have a very big day, whether it was your walk in space or your concert at Madison Square Garden or whatever it is was going on. How did you possibly manage to fall asleep the night before? Congresswoman Plaskett tells me that among the things that work for her, that work for her in terms of helping her fall asleep are lavender bath salts, bourbon, and sex. As frequently happens when someone makes a claim, I bring my friend Michael Grandner from the University of Arizona on to talk about the science behind the claim, which probably was a terrible mistake because it led to about four of the most awkward minutes in podcasting history while Michael Grandner and I talked about sex. So I decided at that point, let's pull this back and and maybe open it up a little bit to a a whole other panel of experts. And let's dig through all of this. And is there science? And if there's not, why? What are the repercussions and ramifications and all of that? But Michael, I want to start with you. Okay. Why is there not a whole ton of great science on whether or not sex is good for sleep? Well, I mean, I'll say the same thing I said last time and that it's it's I can imagine it's really hard to study in a systematic way. You know, it's and the reason it's such a really good question is that it's it's something that impacts real life in for a large number of people. Um, It's something that matters out in the world. But then when you try and bring it into the laboratory and put it under a microscope, it becomes problematic. And it's really hard to learn uh, how to bridge that gap. And so, yeah, so why is there not a lot out there? You can imagine, you know, there's not a lot of people volunteering for those studies. But it's also that that even asking the question in a systematic way that you can look at under the microscope sometimes changes what it is that you're doing. And makes the question hard to ask, but I mean, there are better people on this call to answer that as well, but that's my two cents. Yeah. And I'm excited that I get to pick as many brains as, as I do for this episode. And by the way, let's just officially declare it a free for all. If you want to jump in and weigh in with something here, but feel free to like cut me off, cut somebody else off. Let's just do it as if we were doing it in a, you know, over cocktails at a bar somewhere. Remember when people used to do cocktails at a bar, by the way? Like in public, less than six feet apart. Right. Remember when we all used to get together and actually do things? Um, Yeah, I guess buttressing your point, I I had a hard enough time the first time I ever did a sleep lab, you know, because you go into the sleep lab and you you basically lie on a hospital mattress and try to fall asleep with a million things strapped to you and stuck to you. 
I can't imagine that being at all a conducive environment for people to have sex and not let's not even talk about the monitor in the room where people are, you know, watching your breathing and all those different kinds of things. So I imagine that would be a complete non-starter. But, uh, you know, Jade, is, is there any way that you can see this becoming something where, like Michael said, people would even volunteer to be part of that study? Oh my goodness. I think Michael's totally right that it would be just logistically very difficult to study. But I think there are some opportunities now that we have ambulatory EEGs, you know, um, we have ways of measuring sleep at home that are, you know, a little bit more proximate to the gold standard PSG. Um, but yeah, I, I do feel like it's one of those things where just the act of observing it might change the nature of it. And, you know, since we're talking, I, I think, I presume we'll talk about sexual dysfunction today and also sleep difficulties. And one way is that one way that I've always sort of thought about, say, insomnia and sexual dysfunction analogously is that, you know, if you're trying too hard, it's not going to happen. So, you know, I wonder how that would play into the methodology of the research as well. Well, and we talk about the research. I mean, uh, I've talked to most of you on this panel before about this idea that so much of this is playing into a book for me, where when someone makes a claim, I'm going to try out the thing that they say works for a couple of weeks and document my results in the book. I can't wait to get to write this chapter, it's going to be a very interesting two weeks. <laughs> Who's going to be your lucky partner? Well, is my you know, Mrs. Mrs. Headley has volunteered for that, and and uh, it's. I hope she's on board with your with your uh, well, trial. And uh, and Wendy, actually, that's book. something that I wanted to cover with you as well because you and I, what a year ago now, um, talked about that unfortunate term, um, sleep divorce, where when you Google sleep divorce, inevitably your name comes up. Um, have you seen from the people that you're talking to and from the research you're doing and all the looking at people who are sleeping separately, is it having an impact on their sleep? Is it having an impact on their sex life? How does all that work in, in your experience? Well, as I discussed in my book as well, and as, as we discussed before, there are so many myths around the intersection of sex and sleep and what they mean uh, and how, how do we uh, sort of uh, disentangle the literal meaning of sleeping together from the biblical meaning. And they can be sort of separate things and they don't necessarily have to say anything about the quality of the relationship. So first there are all the, there are these myths at this point, because as, um, as Michael and Jade mentioned, we don't have a whole lot of research on whether sex is in fact a soporific for sleep. We do have this belief that, you know, sex is good for sleep. Again, it's just very hard to test it out. Not impossible, but hard. And the evidence is just not there. We also have this myth that if you're not literally sleeping together, you're not biblically sleeping together. And that's also just not true. Um, what is true is that not sleeping well is definitely not good for your sex life. So that's the one truth in this. Um, the other stuff um, are questions that um, either sort of remain to be tested or, or, or just out and out myths. Because, you know, one of the reasons why I object to the term sleep divorce is that it automatically connotes a, sort of a negative connotation around the relationship. And that does not have to be the case. Some couples may choose to sleep apart because that is actually the best thing that they can do for their relationship. 
and for their sex life. Because, you know, being too tired for sex is a primary reason why people don't have uh, frequent sexual activity. Well, I think and and part of what this conversation so far presumes, um, for better or for worse, is that when we talk about sex, we're presuming that it's good sex. Um, and, and Cheryl, I assume that in your practice, there are tons of people coming through your door for whom sex is not necessarily a positive. Am I right? No, absolutely. And, you know, I always ask people about sleep. I always ask people about sex. And, um, you know, sometimes they do sleep separately, but sometimes separately means we're in the same room, but, you know, we have our own beds. Sometimes it means we have our own room with our own beds in it and we come and visit each other. And sometimes it's, "Ah, no, um, we're good friends like that. And we have our own beds and we have our own room. But I also have my friend here. And so there are so many different ways that you can do that to have that good sex and good sleep and bad sex and bad sleep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because that was one of the things I was thinking about as well in terms of whether or not there was science to support it, because that could introduce a whole other, I feel like, negative side where, you know, perhaps the person, uh, you know, if the relationship between the people, and this is where I'm going to throw it open to anybody that wants to talk, um, you know, if the relationship between the participants isn't necessarily healthy or positive, if there's almost a sense of obligation now there because you feel like the other person's insomnia is just going to get worse if you don't, for lack of a better term, put out, um, then that adds a whole other layer of complexity to it, doesn't it? Well, certainly. And this is sort of why I became interested in relationships and sleep in general. When you think about what sleep is, you know, it is from an evolutionary standpoint, a vulnerable state to be in. Because you're lying down, semi-conscious, your eyes are closed, you know, vulnerable to potential threats from the environment. And we as human beings are social beings. And one of the primary ways that we derive a sense of safety and security, which is really critical to be able to fall into that vulnerable state of sleep, is through our connections with others. Now, of course, you know, it's not just having connections with others that matters. It's also having connections that provide a sense of safety and security. So some relationships could be characterized um, by, you know, promoting safety and security, um, making one feel, you know, uh, safe and able to fall into sleep. Um, and that leads, that also relates to sort of our, our feelings and um, the pleasure we derive from sex. On the other hand, there, is, there are relationships that make that may make you feel anxious or vigilant because, um, you know, you're always on edge, worried if that person is, has your best needs um, and in mind. That can really um, stimulate the, the threat response and make both sleep difficult as well as sexual pleasure uh, difficult. So thinking about sort of how relationships, you know, manifest and how they either provide a sense of safety and security, which would be good for sleep versus vigilance and anxiety, which would be neither good for sleep nor for sex. I think it's that sort of those poles that are really important and why it's so important to think about sleep as a social behavior. Yeah, I just want to iterate on something something that Wendy's saying. And, and by the way, for people who don't know, like everyone should be reading Wendy's book if you have any interest in any of this stuff. It's awesome. Um, and, and I mean, 
she's been talking about this for for a long time um, about these connections, and and I think something that's important to say is is the is when when you have the bed itself or the act of trying to fall asleep or being in the bedroom repeatedly paired with something stressful. I mean, it could be anything, but in this case, we're talking about um, either arguing or just being next to somebody who you're not happy with, or you feel threatened by, or even if something traumatic happens to you in bed, when you're in bed years ago, and the bed then becomes sort of a trigger for that response, whatever that cause is, by bringing that activation into the bed with you, whatever the cause was, however it was repeatedly learned and programmed in or, or, or conditioned to exist, by repeatedly exposing yourself to that negative activation in bed, what you do is the act of trying to go to sleep itself, the act of getting into bed itself can create the very activation that makes sleep more difficult. And then you, it creates a cycle where you have trouble sleeping because of this. And then the activation, even if, even if you are able to relax, that activation now becomes the hurdle you can't get over. And so then that makes you stress out more about not being able to sleep, which then leads to more activation. And this can create chronic insomnia, even if maybe it was one traumatic event or maybe it was repeatedly um, exposed, small stresses and worries and frustrations. Either way, you don't want the bed to become the dentist chair. You don't want getting into bed to create the, the, the mental or physical activation that creates the very hurdle that prevents you from getting good sleep anyway. Bed as the dentist share is an image I'm never going to get out of my head now. That's, <laughs> but it's true. I mean, there, and, and it's kind of why I went down that road, right? There are, there are plenty of people for whom it's not a positive experience. It's a frustrating experience, or it's just, it's an added level of pressure that they just plain don't need or want to deal with because it is the last thing in terms of con- being conducive to sleep. Yeah, I call that um, bed dread. There are many, many people that, that have this, that they worry about going into that room and being in that space. And so it's very important to create a space that welcomes you so that when you go into that room, this is the sanctuary. This is your sigh of relief. This is, this is the place that you want to be. And there are measures that uh, you intentionally take to make this the company. Yeah, and just to follow up on um, you know, these points too, in addition to the dentist chair, we also don't want the bed to become the stage, right? Or like a workspace. And you know, I, I worked with um uh with fertility issues and couples trying to conceive and having trouble with that. And one of the common, and I'm sure Cheryl can speak more to this. Uh, one of the common things can that can happen with a couple when they're trying to conceive and having difficulty is that sex becomes a chore. Um, and the performance anxiety that comes with that gets associated with the bedroom, with the act of going to bed together, with the act of trying to conceive and and sleep becomes, you know, problematic, too, because now the bed is a place of performance anxiety for both sexual act and for sleep. And, you know, it just becomes kind of a vicious cycle from there. Even when people aren't aware that that's what's happening. Exactly. Yeah. 
Michael, do you think that maybe part of the reason why we haven't gone down the road of doing more comprehensive studies? I mean, we talk about the logistics and all of those things, but is there perhaps an element of this is a Pandora's box that we just don't want to open? So it's not necessarily at the top of the list. Maybe. Um, so I'll never forget. I was um, I was a postdoc at the time, I think, and I read a paper. It was actually it was actually one of Wendy's papers, and it made the point that that sort of like turned my perspective on sleep research upside down. Where she said everything we know about sleep biology in humans is measured in a laboratory with people hooked up to stuff um, sleeping alone. And and she made the point that, you know, we're already complaining about being in an artificial environment, being hooked up to wires is already changing what it is we're measuring. But what about the part where we're sleeping alone and that that you even look in you look at animals, you look at mice, you look even look at fruit fly sleep research, fruit flies sleeping alone are different than fruit, fruit flies that sleep together. Fruit, we didn't even think that fruit flies were social animals, but apparently they, they are. Um, and they, they sleep differently when they're separated versus alone. And so just the fundamental act of how we're measuring this in what environment. So, so I, I think it was, it was Jade who mentioned earlier the, the advent of some of this new sleep technology that wasn't around 15 years ago. That might give us some of these windows to, to see what things are like in the real world. That might help us maybe open, you know, maybe make it so it's not just a Pandora's box. It's a Pandora's box because you have sociopolitical, emotional, religious, cultural um, stuff that's attached to it. But it's also a Pandora's box because, and that's sort of where I was getting before, that from a scientific and methodological standpoint, once you can try and control for something, it changes other things. And the whole point is we're controlling for the wrong things or we're, we're, we're suppressing some things. And so that's sort of part of the Pandora's box is that once you, once you change one thing, like what else is it changing? So maybe we can creak it open a little bit. You start to talk about things that, you know, you don't necessarily be in the need to be in the lab to measure. Right. I wouldn't want to touch me with a 10 foot pole if I had this thing on my head while I'm in bed. That's just that's my dream headband. Well, that's nothing compared to what you, what you see in the lab. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, from the Pandora's box standpoint, I think the other part of this is, you know, beyond the logistics is, well, to what end? Right. I mean, these are all really interesting questions, but, you know, First of all, my guess is that there's going to be huge individual differences um, in the impact of sex on sleep. For some, it may be beneficial, again, depending on the quality of the relationship, the quality of the sex and other characteristics of that, that relationship. Um, but again, again, to my point of like, to what end, why would we do that research? It, it is an interesting question. And I'm somebody who studies couples in sleep. So, of course, I think it's really important. And we have these myths about thinking that sex is good for sleep, even though there's really not a great deal of evidence proving that. On the other hand, like what is the next, you know, are we to intervene? Are we to, to recommend to everyone, you know, you know, have sex before sleep because it's good for you, um, <laughs> regardless of the quality of the relationship. So from an intervention perspective, I'm not necessarily sure that sort of demonstrating that um, there is an association between um, sexual activity and sleep necessarily takes us to improving people's sleep. Not necessarily, but it could. I mean, we we could. It could. Yeah. Well, 
Well, particularly if you'd go to the next step, which is sort of from a, because there's a lot of ways that sex could be beneficial for sleep. Are we talking about the psychological benefits of sex, of good sex with a, with a healthy relationship? That's one thing. And that is a different mechanism as opposed to some theory that, um, that there might be actual direct physiological benefits of sexual activity on sleep, which is itself a very interesting scientific question, which is being investigated. And it relates to, you know, many other really important um, issues around sleep, including sort of potential neurobiological substrates that might link both healthy relationships and healthy sex with sleep. Here I'm talking about, for instance, oxytocin, the love hormone. You know, if we're going to, one of the more interesting things to me about this question of sex and sleep is really, well, you know, is it, is it through psychological pathways that, you know, people feel that they sleep better after having good sex? Um, or is, or might there be some direct physiological benefits of sexual activity, including releasing oxytocin, which we know, um, that happens during sex, um, and, you know, oxytocin is an anxiolytic, so it does bring down anxiety, it can reduce stress, that could be good for sleep. And that's the kind of question that is now being studied um, by some labs, and I think is a really exciting question, because it gets to this point of not just is sex good or bad for sleep, but if it is, how so? And what are the, you know, physiological pathways that might explain why that level of human connection benefit sleep and what are interventions we can do. And when you talk about the physiological benefits of it, though, as well, somebody, a couple of you actually have mentioned the the term performance anxiety. And so if we were to find out, and this is kind of where I get into the Pandora's box of all of it, um, if we were to find out that, for example, I'll just use the word because no one has yet. uh, If we find out that there are things that happen during orgasm, for example, um, that are the things that are beneficial to your sleep. Well, suddenly your your experiences with insomnia are kind of in your partner's hands now to a degree as well in, in that experience. And so the pressure's on them to make sure that you, for lack of a better term, get what you need out of that experience to help your sleep, right? I mean, Cheryl, when people are coming into your office... Is there, do you hear any kind of correlation between people who are having quote unquote good sex and good sleep? Are you hearing any of that? Um, sometimes, but good sex doesn't always mean um, the person has had an orgasm. Sometimes they're not related. And sometimes the orgasm is on them because I can do it faster than my partner can do it. And so that's not quite the issue. Um, so sometimes it is. How beneficial is the sexual act to me, whether or not they have skills, you have skills or or what. But there is something that I receive in the long run by um, engaging in this sexual activity. And whether it's just the intimacy of the situation um, or whether it is some other benefit, you know, to say, hey, look at that. I put that person to sleep in three minutes flat, you know. <laughs> Whatever it might be, um, there must be some benefit to say that, you know, okay, so this is good for this reason. I was thinking about a conversation I had once about coffee and heart disease that, you know, people who drink coffee seem to have better heart health long term. But if you look biologically at caffeine, 
you know, in terms of its effect on blood vessels, you'd think it would be somewhat damaging if not, you know, because of, because of its effect on blood flow. But people who drink coffee, you know, live longer and have fewer heart attacks. And so um, the, the, the answer might not have anything to do with the caffeine at all. It might have to do with the fact that coffee is also a good source of other antioxidants. Um, and that, you know, natural polyphenols and other other potential substances that we don't even have names for yet are in the bean somewhere that we're, we've been looking at the caffeine. Maybe that's not even where the answer is. So I mean, that's what this conversation sounds like. It's that we don't even know all of the active ingredients in this Pandora's box. Yeah, we don't, we don't, we don't, we don't know, you know, we think it's part of it is probably relationship quality. Part of it is probably chemical effects of, of, you know, orgasms or, or, or any other, anything else going on. Part of it could be intimacy and interpersonal connectedness. There, there could be lots of different, you know, active ingredients here. And, and well, one, one theory I have about one active ingredient is the uh, mindful nature of sex. Mm. or hopefully the mind interesting like if you're if you're in the moment having a good sexual experience hopefully you're in the here and now you're in your body you're with your partner and if you're doing that then you're not thinking about how difficult it is going to be to fall asleep and how you have a big meeting coming up tomorrow and you better fall asleep soon or else you know so i i can imagine how specifically for people with insomnia and anticipatory anxiety about sleep, how having sex could offer a great distraction. I mean, distraction is not the right word, more like a means to be more embodied and more mindful. That is helpful for taking away those racing mind, you know, kinds of problems. Like I always say to my insomnia patients, let's get out of our heads and into our bodies, right? And one way to get into our bodies is through sexual activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but again, I think that's where there might be huge individual yeah. differences mm-hmm. that right. for, for some se- sexual activity is a very present mind, mindful experience for others who, you know, again, may have negative past sexual experiences or have body image issues. It, it, it can be, you know, fraught with worry and anxiety rather than um, uh, a, a really present focused experience. But yeah, I, I agree that could be a mechanism through which for some people, Sexual activity um, could help to, you know, downregulate stress, become more present-minded, and be in a good state to fall asleep. So ultimately, is this going to be another one of those areas where, you know, we chalk it up to it works for some people, it doesn't work for other people? Your mileage may vary? Well, I would say... You know, talking about how sex works for anything is probably a bad strategy to begin with. You know, it's not, you know, just sort of like what Jade was saying, when sex becomes so, you know, sort of functionally um, sort of directed uh, in the case of fertility, you know, there's often down downstream consequences of that. So, you know, sex is good for lots of things, particularly when it's with, a, you know, a good partner. Um, and there may be benefits of um, sexual activity for some, um, on sleep as well as, you know, other benefits. Um, but again, what we definitely know is that sleep is good for sex. Uh, so, so if you need another reason to, uh, you know, prioritize sleep in your life and in your relationship, well, promoting, you know, sex drive, sexual activity, enjoyment of sexual activity, sleep is where, you know, 
the money it's at. Okay, so then you're all exponentially smarter than I, and and um, would would probably be a better source for wisdom for me on this. Um, like, forget about the the fear that I have that perhaps uh, in the research phase of my book, where I am, I'm trying out all these different things that people propose for a couple of weeks, and you know, using my dream headband and doing a battery of cognitive tests and all these different things to see if see what the actual impact is on my cognition and all these other factors that at least that I can measure at home. Um, I mean, I I kind of have a fear of the sex becoming a sleep onset association or a sleep crutch so that now it has to be there or I can't fall asleep. Um, but in terms of that, that part of the research for my book where I am taking these hints from people and trying them myself, if I were going to do the sex chapter and, and reveal whether or not here's my two weeks that I spent trying to see what impact sex would have on my sleep. Help me do first of all, do I even go down that road? Do is it is should I try should I try it nightly? Should I try it <laughs> once a week? I don't even know how to like if somebody says to me, you should try melatonin. Okay, I I can have a conversation with Michael where I'll go, Michael, help me figure out the dosing for the melatonin and all these things so that I've at least got a fighting chance of having it work properly. I don't know the first thing about how to incorporate sex into my sleep routine for two weeks. Anybody want to take a shot at that? So, so, so question for Cheryl, um, uh, maybe that doesn't testosterone peak in the morning. Listen, if you don't get enough sleep, testosterone levels will increase. And so people tend to have more non-stimulated arousal, it, it, which is really weird. Uh, you know, when I, when I think about it, unless, um, uh, so it, it can make a difference, period. If you're not sleeping, you have that higher level of testosterone, you will experience more periods of arousal. That is a strange thing. Now, it doesn't mean that the quality of sex responding to the arousal is going to make a difference. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that at all. And when you are talking about, you know, telling you sex, the timing of sex it doesn't mean that you have sex at bedtime and then you go to sleep. Maybe you have that sex at a different time of day. Like, you know, some people that exercise and exercise in this, you know, time of the day and get my heart rate up and blah, blah, blah. I sleep like a baby at night. Maybe does that mean the same thing about sex? You don't have to wait until bedtime, have sex and then go to sleep. That might not be how it works for you. So you're dosing your time of dosing might vary and how big of a dose do you get? I, I, okay. I like the metaphor. Uh, (laughs) I, boy, I, I thought I was going to get some clarity from this conversation. One thing I I am getting from this conversation is that more research needs to be done. Wendy says there's research being done. Thank goodness. They didn't call me on that research because it would be fraught with all kinds of fear on my end, but I, I, I do feel like at least there's a smarter way to go about asking the questions. And so for that reason, I'm grateful to all of you for making some time for this conversation and we'll see where it goes from here. Maybe maybe that's a whole other branch of science for someone to get into where they'll find a way to uh, have a sleep lab where they can actually get past all of the inherent awkwardness and and figure out a way to track all of the things that matter. I, 
it'll be fascinating to see. Well, here, here's a quick suggestion that follows sort of uh, some of the couples and sleep research that I've done. You can do a daily diary on your own. And I would suggest you do it with your partner because in all likelihood, there are sex differences in the response. So what you may experience may be different from what your wife may experience, but you could track things like um, sexual activity over the course of two weeks, um, as well as other relational uh, behaviors, how satisfied, um, how connected you feel with your partner, um, and then also track your sleep. And you could look um, over time at uh, whether, you know, you're um, able to fall asleep more quickly on the days where, um, or the, when, when you have sex, or maybe it's just on the days where you feel more connected with your partner. I think that that might elucidate more about what it is about being in a relationship um, and what types of relationship behaviors are beneficial versus not so beneficial for, uh, for your sleep as well as, you know, your mood and everything else. So maybe you'll find that, you know, having a conflict with your spouse, that really matters. Um, sex is good, but it doesn't really have a measurable impact on how you sleep night to night. So some sort of daily and nightly tracking of those behaviors is something that we do in research all the time. And that could certainly be applied uh, to this question, especially with ambulatory, um, monitors available at Home. I'd be curious too whether scheduled versus spontaneous sex would be different. So if you're going to do this for two weeks, maybe one week you do regimented scheduled dosing of you know of sexual activity, and then another week you just kind of go with the flow and see what happens. PRN, PRN sex, exactly. <laughs> so because I think that could tap into a little bit about this performance anxiety versus. Um, spontaneous intimacy and connection. And, you know, I just wonder if that would make a difference. That's Dr. Jade Wu, along with Dr. Michael Grandner, Dr. Wendy Troxell, and sex therapist Cheryl Carroll here on the first episode of season four of the Snooze Button podcast. So much great information to pass along. So many cool guests, um, some returning guests and some new friends that we've made along the way. Next week on the show, one of the front men from one of the most legendary rock and roll bands in history talks to us about what it's like to try and fall asleep on a tour bus or fall asleep when you're on the road for a year at a time in a different hotel room every night. That's next week on the Snooze Button. Meantime, I'm Neil Headley. Hey, get some sleep, would you? 